0: Hello and welcome to the CAAV podcast. In this edition, we're looking at the conflicting demands in the energy market and what that might mean for the months and years ahead. At a time of great concern over the cost of energy and security of supply, we are also meant to be moving rapidly towards net zero. Some countries, like Germany, are already reverting to coal in a bid to improve energy security. But clearly that comes with an environmental trade-off. And flies in the face of net zero commitments. Here in the UK meeting growing demand for green energy will involve a massive investment in national infrastructure and that too comes at a cost, not only for the energy companies but also for the landowners over which that infrastructure must pass. Rebecca Collins, Technical and Policy Advisor at the CAAB is here to talk us through the diverging paths ahead and offer some advice to landowners who are likely to be affected by future investment in the national grid. So, Rebecca, given the upheaval caused to energy markets by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what do you see as the most pressing issue for the government
1: right now? Yeah, thanks, Olivia. And you've you've sort of um, hinted at it already, and you're absolutely quite right. I think the pressing issues come in three different ways. Some of those in the industry will refer to it as the energy trilemma, and it. It's this combination of the energy security situation. People want their lights to stay on in their homes. They want the energy, to the electricity to go off. But also there's the cost to the consumer, you know, at what cost is it to to keep those lights on? And is it affordable? And we hear an awful lot in the press about that recently. Indeed, the costs of energy were going up even before the invasion and the war in Ukraine. Obviously, it's been exacerbated by that. But the cost of energy is something that is of real concern. And then the third point, really, and and again, you've touched on it, are the environmental challenges, particularly in terms of climate change and reaching this net zero target. It's not sustainable for us to keep generating electricity and energy at a cost to the environment. And so the the government has, this is not unique in the UK, other countries will have the same issue. But it's where where the trade-off is between those between all of those those three issues so you know we could go all out for energy security for example could revert to coal but then that's going to knock a hole in the affordability and of course it as you quite rightly say will affect our carbon emissions uh, negatively
0: now the government has committed to decarbonize power generation by 2035 and to reach net zero as a country by 2050 is that just going to go out of the
1: window now well that's a, I mean that's a difficult question and it and I think there are there's an awful lot of concern I mean there's a number of reports written about this in terms of the UK's journey to net zero the climate change Commission have, have, have looked at this and and really cross-examined where the UK is in terms of reaching its target there's a number of variables and one of them is which of course is is how we measure that in the first place and what the baseline measurement is and the methodology for measuring it. So it's difficult to know whether we're on target. I think the the UK has made some good progress, particularly on the energy generation side. 20 years ago, renewables would essentially have been unaffordable. But actually now, when you look at at what's available, the cost and the efficiency of the equipment, it has improved, technology has improved and costs have come down. And so we see this sort of, if you like, an explosion of Of renewables coming forward it's been gradually sort of building up you know with the introduction of feed-in tariffs with with solar some years ago now but really that's kind of gained momentum and it's standing on its own own two feet without subsidy so the technology and has really improved and the costs of renewables have come down so much so that actually renewables are standing on their own two feet commercially without the need for government support and subsidies. And actually developers are wanting to roll out sites because it's now cost effective to do and commercial to do so.
0: So we've made a fair amount of progress. What else needs to happen
1: if we are going to decarbonise power generation altogether? Well, I think there's there's a number of interconnected issues here. In terms of energy generation, got to look at the grid as a whole and how the grid works currently and how renewables changes how the grid then is going to work. So at the moment or certainly historically um, the energy generation has come from sort of large power generation plants and then being distributed across the country. Now what the renewables are doing is you're seeing smaller energy generation sites pop up all over the place much more diversity in terms of location and renewables in itself presents a challenge in terms of how the energy is generated it's it's quite it's unreliable in in the fact that you know if the sun stops shining if it it becomes a cloudy day or if the wind stops blowing then the energy isn't isn't created or not so much energy is, is created and that causes A real problem for the grid in terms of actually how the grid operates itself because it's a finely tuned and needs to be finely balanced it can't have big power fluctuations and we've seen in 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 pakistan actually only last night that their grid failed because of a fluctuation so in order to keep the lights on and keep everything working that has to be finely balanced and so renewables really presents a challenge in that and so to make it work, what the energy companies need, what the electricity companies need, is they need a way of storing the electricity. Um, and this usually takes the form of batteries, but can also be stored in other ways, such as hydro and things like that, so that they can store it for when they've got enough energy and then release it when there are those dips, so when, the, when it's a cloudy day. So it really does present some interesting challenges, And so that storing of electricity becomes now a quite a regular feature of what we see as an integral part of of the grid.
0: Now, the government has talked a lot about um, improving the energy efficiency of new buildings, older buildings. They've talked a lot about installing ground, ground source heat pumps. Is that something which is easily achievable? Will it make a big difference?
1: I mean, if we could if we could start again from fresh and build everything from new housing stock, then I think it, it would be a lot easier to achieve. But I think the biggest challenge the government faces is is the existing building stock and what we have there. A lot of the more historic buildings, you know, maybe about stone or, or single skin brickwork, or indeed other other construction methods. In terms of energy efficiency, you're looking at two things. Not only are you looking at the amount of energy it needs but you're also looking at how much potentially heat in buildings how much heat it's losing so it comes down to things like insulation the government's really looking at this and has committed to to funding huge amounts of money to improve insulation but there are practical issues you know there are practical issues if you have a if you have a historic building that's listed perhaps it's not going to be that easy to insulate so there's not a a single quick answer here and actual retrofitting in some of the existing building stock comes with some real practical issues you know can it be done is it going to affect room sizes what else is in the way plumbing electricity a floorboard's going to have to be lifted but also how that building's being used you know if you have a tenant in a building say it's a house are they potentially going to have to move out and if they move out where do they go and live and if everybody's trying to do this all at the same time there's all sorts of problems isn't there because you know there's not enough houses uh you know there's even a housing issue now we we, we know that that's been a long-standing problem so everything becomes interlinked everything becomes a challenge and it's this target of of tr- trying to reach in quite a short period of time now really for everybody to have to do everything simultaneously simply potentially not enough resources to make that happen you know are there enough people who know what they're doing in in the right trades to be able to carry out that work as well so there's definitely some challenges there and yeah it's uh it's certainly we've got to have a plan to work forward and the government's sort of really looking at this with and they're leaning quite heavily on the heat pump first approach but it's not going to be straightforward and won't necessarily be appropriate in, in every building i understand that with the
0: ground source heat pumps uh Traditional, if I can call it that, electricity uh, won't be up to the task. So people will have to have their electricity replaced with three-phase. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and that's one of the big constraints is the actual grid itself and the capacity of the grid. At the moment, you know, most homes have just got a single-phase electricity supply. I think Western Power Distribution were actually indicating that the biggest challenge when providing for heat pumps, is going to be linked to domestic properties, to to houses, and they anticipated that approximately a third of all all homes would need to be upgraded to three-phase electricity. Now that's a major logistical challenge, you know, you think of how many homes there are in the UK, but also then the knock-on impact of that in terms of upgrading and reinforcing the the infrastructure behind every home. So perhaps one house in a village, if it was upgraded to three phase, maybe there's enough capacity on the grid. But if all the homes or a third of the homes in that village need to be upgraded, probably the grid then behind it is going to need to be reinforced to carry the additional load. Now that on top of the growing
0: population and a big move to more electric vehicles, I'm I'm guessing demand for power is just continuing to grow.
1: Yeah, and there's some. I mean, there's some stark figures here. I think you could, for example, you could look at the national grid's forecast to give a given idea of of likely uh, requirements. I think they were indicating 11 million electric vehicles by 2030, growing to 30 million vehicles by 2050. That's a huge increase on what the grid is required to to deliver as well as estimating that there'll be around 20 million heat pumps by 2050. You know, 2050 is the net zero target date. So, you know, that's a huge amounts of, of electricity. To put it in some rough context, somewhere between half as much electricity as we use today to double the amount of electricity that we require today. And again, there's a number of variables that may affect that. We're going to need potentially up to double by 2050. So twice as much electricity as we're using today. Wow. Goodness. So from a national grid perspective, is this just
0: about adding in new renewable energy generation sites to the existing network? Or does something more comprehensive need to happen?
1: You're essentially looking at the rebuilding and reinforcement of the entire grid across the, across the UK. And again, to sort of give it some context and, and the challenges that electricity um, companies are facing, to put it in some context of the size and scale of the task that the electricity companies are faced with, the CEO of National Grid in its in half-term year results said that they now need to carry out over five times the amount of new electricity transmission infrastructure in the next seven years, than what has previously built in the, in the past thirty years, so that kind of puts it into some context. They've got to do more in the next seven years than they've had to, like five times more than they've had to do in the previous thirty years. So you can see the size and scale of the, of the challenge. And in terms of actually sort of boiling that down, in terms of what might that look like in in, in fields, and you know going across landowners' uh, land we're looking at somewhere between 150,000 and 450,000 miles of cable either new or to be reinforced and upgraded that's that's a significant amount of the network
0: what a huge project is there existing government policy in place to support this
1: or will we need to see new legislation coming through that's a really good question olivia and it's again it's one that, that the government has been looking at and last year, what the government actually did is they asked that very question and they submitted a call for evidence, which the CAV also responded to. And they really looked at the land and consents side of the industry in terms of what, what powers do they have in terms of planning permission, their permitted development rights, but also on the land side in terms of how how can they get an agreement with a, with, with a landowner? What is a statutory process if they cannot get an agreement and really seeking input into how that works and what the challenges are because you know clearly the consents are part of the delivery it's not the only part an electricity company has to align to to roll out this infrastructure but it is you know it can be a major barrier if they cannot get an agreement with with a landowner and they have to seek a necessary way leave as as, as an example that can take time and obviously and also cost the electricity company money to, to obtain and so really the government was asking, you know, is, is it currently fit for purpose? And we we await the outcome of that call for evidence. But we do know and the CAV are also involved in an awful lot of best practice work to improve relationships between landowners and, and the electricity industry and also to make sure that our members are providing the right advice and responding to requests from electricity companies in a, in a, in a timely and professional way so that there's that as quick as possible uh, rollout of essential infrastructure, while of course protecting the landowners' interests.
0: Now, obviously we have different policy in the devolved governments. Uh, w-
1: what will this look like in the other countries of the UK? In terms of statutory powers, there are, I mean, essentially, the electric, most of our members are going to be familiar with the Electricity Act 1989, as the if you like the backdrop of statutory powers for electricity companies that they'll use on a day-to-day basis. Um, and that, that will basically see two real options in terms of statutory powers for an electricity company if they cannot obtain agreement with a landowner. One thing I would just say though, and, and this formed part of our response to the government, is at the moment the vast majority of infrastructure is rolled out through negotiation. And the electricity companies don't necessarily rely on their statutory powers. They only do so if they if they have to. And so it's a lot more of a consensual environment than can be seen in other industries. And that's really good because it's quick, it saves unnecessary time and resources being spent on getting, getting consents and using statutory powers. And we see an awful lot of what's called non-statutory way leaves so they're negotiated consensual way leaves in place for infrastructure that's obviously not always appropriate sometimes an electricity company will need more security than a way leave will offer them and there's some confusion over what a way leave is but essentially a way leave is a is a form of license a permission for the equipment to be on the land and as a license Technically speaking, a licence can be brought to an end, but there is a, there is a backdrop there available to the electricity companies should a landowner want to bring the agreement to an end. So it's not quite as simple as a, as a licence because the electricity companies do have protection, and that's for obvious reasons. Uh, it would be very fragile environment if all landowners could suddenly bring their agreements to an end for equipment to be removed. So, but you're, I think going back to your original question about how does it look across the country, we've, got the, we've obviously got the Electricity Act 1989, which I've mentioned. In England and Wales, for larger projects, you've also got NSIPS, Nationally Significant Infrastructure Projects. So these are for larger projects where an electricity company can seek what's called a DCO, or Development Consent Order. And that's like a, a one-stop shop for all of the consents that they require. For schemes that are over certain thresholds and so that would be planning permission, the the rights to construct and, and to keep the apparatus on land and indeed can include compulsory purchase powers along alongside that.
0: So what about timescales? Presumably there's the need to re- secure planning permission, uh, you've got to source all the labour and inputs, what's it looking like?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. There are there are well, there are a, a, a few issues here for the electricity companies in terms of timescales and how things how long things take to deliver. Obviously, they've got to first of all be aware of what work is required, and there is two issues here. The electricity companies are, are, are very good and, and and have some way of forecasting future demand and work to say to reinforce or upgrade an electricity um, supply, or indeed for the larger energy generation sites that they can see coming online, like a large solar farm. They, they're usually aware of those and know that there's new infrastructure to get to go in to connect an energy generation site to the grid. So for those, there's a degree of, of planning and foresight, which helps them because they they can lead up to it and they can get all the consents lined up ready ready for those. What's more challenging and more difficult for them is the request for new customer connections and being able to forecast when and where these will come from, so if I decide to go out tomorrow and get an electric vehicle and a heat pump, I'm going to be contacting my local electricity company to say that I'd like a three phase supply. I need a new supply I need a new new, new charger et etc to go into my into my house but they have no foresight of who's going to phone up when. Um, They're currently faced with targets set by the regulator of Gem in terms of the amount of time they're allowed to respond to a new customer request. They have to provide a quotation for that service within a certain timescale. So that puts them under a certain amount of pressure. They have to respond to new customer requests. What's going to become even more challenging is timescales set by the regulator for time to connect. So this is the overall amount of time the company is going to have from the point of me saying, yes, I'd like you to proceed, I've seen your quote, please can you carry on? They're gonna have quite restrictive timescales to make that connection. And if they don't meet them, it could be faced with financial penalties. So it's really going to put some strain on top of what is already a high load of, of, of work and I think it's a lack of visibility, the fact that they won't know when that's coming and they'll just have to react as and when they receive requests and, and divert attention away so that they can deal with the new customer requests. To add into that, to even add even more to that, the way in which new customer connections are charged is also changing. And without going into too much detail, what it means is the cost that the customer will have to pay, most customers will have to pay, is likely to fall. So it can be quite expensive to get an upgrade uh, to an electricity supply to a house, it can be quite cost prohibitive. Um, but those costs, the way in which that cost is calculated is changing, the methodology is changing for, for most. And so the cost will, will come down so the, the likelihood is electricity companies are going to see even more and accelerated requests coming in from more and more people, making their jobs even harder. Now clearly a lot of landowners all over the UK are going to be affected by this. What can valuers do to prepare them for the changes ahead? I think being aware of the of the type of, of work that's coming. And the fact that it will probably land on most valuer's desks, if it, and many are already seeing this. And it could take the form of large energy generation sites in terms of acquiring land for um, a new solar park or, or other types of form of energy, or indeed energy storage, battery storage, for example. We're seeing a lot of activity in that area at the moment. But also that kind of grid, I think what's going to come across more common is that actually to connect all the towns and villages and, and indeed even farms themselves, the grid actually crosses over an awful lot of countryside. You know, it has to go across fields in order to connect up everybody to, to electricity. So I think it would be fair to say that most valuers will, will at some point in the very near future, if not already, be having work land on their desk, which they may not have dealt with for, for a while, you know, a lot of our members will will uh, know for their exams, will have, will have looked perhaps at the Electricity Act nineteen eighty-nine and, and may be vaguely familiar with with its provisions. It's good it would be good to to really look at it again and to remind and do a refresh, uh, but also to kind of look at current publications as well as keeping an eye out for new training material to come out from the CAV later this year. So we are we are planning to run a dedicated webinar to help members as a refresh session on the powers that are available to electricity companies um, as well as producing a, a new publication to sort of update it and expand it so that it's relevant for the whole of the UK. Now we've seen huge problems with
0: the HS2 scheme how can landowners be sure that they're fairly compensated and
1: can negotiate the right access agreements? Well I think I think getting professional advice is obviously key and that's and that's where our, our members obviously come in. The the question of fairly compensated, you know, obviously that's that's something which is it can be subjective and you know what one landowner considers as, as fair versus what someone else considers as fair can obviously vary. The electricity industry has a fairly well established standard um rate. And, and in all honesty, what, what we what we see is, particularly say on farmland, is that those rates they're negotiated by um, the Energy Networks Association alongside the NFU and the CLA usually each year. And those rates have got some reasonably generous margins in them to say that actually, for the majority of of, of rural landowners and farmers, they're adequate. But it's always worth getting advice because they're not fit for every situation. And so if you have a, a farmer that has a specialist crop or indeed has future development potential, it's really important that they get the advice and that dialogue happens early on and to make sure that the electricity company understands why why this is different and to really encourage that kind of negotiation to take place and, and preferably to avoid statutory powers because that that becomes more painful. more difficult both for the electricity company but but also for the landowner themselves as well Uh, the question of compensation then can to a certain extent well potentially will get determined by tribunal, if it really goes all the way to to, to to a dispute, and that can that can be potentially costly and and time consuming for everybody. So early advice, early engagement, making sure that you've got someone that really knows uh, the, the the farm, the landholding, or whatever premises are being affected, and that can give that advice with with knowledge of, of the powers that ultimately the electricity companies have.
0: Is there scope for people to actually make money out of this, for example, developing their own renewable sites? Um, Will
1: it become easier to connect to the grid than it is now? In terms of potential to make money, I mean, I think that we are seeing in terms of energy generation, we're seeing a lot of private developers wanting to now progress with energy generation sites or indeed storage sites. And actually, while sometimes there may be, depending on the size of the of the project, if it reaches a, the certain thresholds, they could potentially go for a DCO, which we talked about earlier, and get compulsory purchase to acquire land. More commonly, we're actually seeing, you know, deals being done in the market for those sorts of sites, commercial transactional deals, because there's, there, there's enough in the market for them to be able to do those commercial deals. There's enough money in it for them. There's enough... The commercial environment for renewables means that there is enough money for these commercial deals with landowners to, to be done. So there hasn't there doesn't need to be this reliance on, on compulsory purchase powers um, necessarily. And that's what we are generally seeing. We're seeing negotiated deals being done in the market. In terms of whether somebody wants to generate their own electricity, that's going to be very site specific. There are examples of particularly high energy requirement sites where they're in a fairly isolated um, location and they're struggling to get a connection to the grid in time because of the demands on the electricity companies is actually made sense for them to have on-site energy generation themselves but there's a variety of factors there to consider you know the 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 first thing is is how much is it going to cost for the for upgrades for energy through the grid and, and how long. We have heard of some some connections to the grid not being available until perhaps late um late 2020s, perhaps early 2030. Um, so, you know, there's a whole number of things there to to consider. But certainly again, this is where professional advice comes in with somebody who who knows and, un- and understands um, the constraints and indeed the issues of the of the the landowner who's looking at this. Yeah, and then I think I've hinted at this already in terms of connecting to the grid. Certainly new, new customer requests, the regulator is trying to set timescales for uh, new connections and upgrades to connections. But that's not to say that if you had a new energy generation site that you would be able to get a connection to the grid. Because of the work that the electricity companies have on their in their in-trays, in terms of existing reinforcement of the grid and new sites that they have to connect, they've essentially got this huge backlog of work. And so it's it can take some time and it's not necessarily easy for an electricity company to to make a new connection because of the constraints. In order for them to make a new connection, they have to essentially switch off. The, electric, the, the the grid, and that has to be planned. And there's certain times of year where an electricity company is not allowed to switch off uh, the grid, particularly over winter is is the main period where they're not allowed to, to switch off. For planned works, they have to maintain the service to, to customers. So all that takes time and planning. And so I don't think it's easier. I think actually the, the, the challenges and the workload that the electricity companies are facing are actually going to make it take longer for for new for some new connections, particularly on the energy generation side. Thank
0: you, Rebecca. There's clearly a lot of change afoot, and given the volatility of the energy market right now, it's certainly worth keeping abreast of the likely trends ahead. I know the CAB is always keeping its members up to date, and members can access detailed briefing notes with full information on the CAB website. Rebecca Collins, thank you once again for joining the CAB podcast. And there we are, we've reached the end of yet another episode of the CAAV podcast. If you want to keep up to date with all future episodes, or indeed catch up on previous ones, please head to our website, or you can subscribe for free on whatever platform you use. Also, if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch by emailing us on enquire UK that's it for today so until the next time thank you very much for listening and bye for now